Arctic cold, but that's Minnesota, is it not? All right. Glad to see you all here this morning. See a number of faces missing. I uh, know there's still a lot of sickness going around, um, but we're glad that you're able to be here today to worship with us. We have the privilege each week of coming together as believers in Christ, as the church of the living God, to worship our Lord together in the unity of the Spirit. And that, folks, is a blessing indeed. Let's bow for prayer and ask the Lord to bless this time of ministry of His in His Word. So pray with me if you would. Our Father, we of, mo- all, of all people are most blessed because you have chosen to shower your grace upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. It is in Him that we fellowship together in the truth of the Spirit. It is in Him that we have a blessed hope of His soon return to take us to be with Him where He is and we will see Him face to face. Our Father, we many times forget or fail to remember what you have done for us, that you have redeemed us for yourself, for your own. We are the children of God through Christ. And I pray, Lord, this morning that as we go to this passage of Scripture, that we would see you fresh and new, that we would worship you in truth and in, in, our, in our spirits, and that you would receive honor and glory, for you alone are worthy to receive it. We thank you for the time we have together this morning and pray your blessing on it. Fill us with your spirit. Teach us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I call your attention to verse 43. I'll read through verse 52. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? 
But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who was who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to him, to them, "Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does?" And they replied, "Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee." <clears throat> Because of the words that Jesus has spoken in this passage, there's a great deal of vocal opinions that are coupled with his words. And because of that, there arose a great division of the people. This is not uncommon in Jew, with the Jews. Anytime they met, there were always divisions and banterings of ideas and opinions. They had something that we would do well to have. We live in a day when opinions don't matter. When if you do have one, you're canceled. This was not the way with the Jewish people. This division that occurred was not unexpected by the Lord, and it should not be unexpected by us when we speak of Christ, when we give our opinions with regard to Scripture, It should not be unexpected that we will cause or have some kind of division occur. Just about all the truth that Jesus preached caused disruption and division in in his ministry. It happened all through his public ministry. We see in John chapter 9 verse 16... The Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. In chapter 10, verse 19, and there was a division among the Jews because of these words that Jesus spoke. Jesus himself said, I did not come to bring peace, but division. Luke chapter 12. Verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, for now on, In one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In In other words, when when Jesus enters the picture, there is division. Because... Not everyone has the same opinion about Jesus as everyone else. Believers should not be divided from one another. However, they are. It seems like that Satan's biggest ploy, one of his biggest ploy, is to bring things into the believer's Domain that caused division and disruption. 
this social justice movement, this wokeism that we see running rampant across our country is one of those. I think it's probably the biggest source of division that I've seen in many years. However, the gospel will always divide believers from unbelievers. Always. If you stand on the truth of the gospel, you're going to find yourself in opposition with unbelievers. It was a major part of the ministry of the Son of God to divide people. Division is The division here was so intense that many of the people would have laid hands on Jesus and had Him arrested, but it wasn't yet in God's timeline for Him to be arrested. So the officers <coughs> had sent the chief priests and, and, and uh, the chief priest had sent officers to arrest Jesus. But now they return without him, without their captive. And now there is an extreme amount of perplexity and confusion among the officers of the temple about Jesus. Now, who are these officers? They are the temple police. They are Levites who have been given the duty of policing the temple and upholding law and order among the Jewish people. And so when asked, why did you not bring him to us, as they were told to do, they answer, no one ever spoke like this man. Sounds like kind of a lame excuse for not doing what your duty was to do. This wasn't something new. There were many times in Jesus' ministry when his teaching caused astonishment and even bewilderment. Mark chapter 12, verse 17 Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Luke chapter 4, verse 32, and they were astonished at his teaching, for it possessed authority. Luke 20, verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Jesus taught, when Jesus taught, it stopped many mouths because his teaching was powerful. It had authority because no one ever spoke like Jesus spoke. And when he spoke, it was God speaking. I can only imagine the dumbfounded looks on the faces of these officers when they said, no one ever spoke like this man. What are they actually saying? In essence, they're saying, this man is not like you teachers of the law. He speaks with authority. He doesn't have to have a quotation from every source for everything that he says. 
this would have incensed the religious leaders. They would have been very angry at these statements. You have to understand, these officers are not hardened soldiers like the Roman soldiers were. These, these officers were Levites. They're priests. They are appointed by the Sanhedrin. And their training was to look at situations and be impartial and weigh evidence that is presented. So they've been waiting for several days now to do what the Pharisees had told them to do, and that was to bring Jesus to them. They've been waiting. They've been watching. They've been listening. Seeking an opportunity to arrest Him. We see their first attempt beginning in verse 32. When it says the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priest and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So this goes back to about the middle of the week of the feast. And Jesus has been teaching every day. The officers are listening every day as he taught. And so on the one hand... They must have looked and seen no reason to arrest Jesus. And on the other hand, they are impressed by what he says. But as they watched and listened, they became more and more convinced that Jesus is not a threat. He's not a threat. And they became enamored with his words. Who wouldn't? His words were the words of truth. And in them they had power. And there was conviction. Because Jesus spoke the truth. As God's Messiah. As the Son of God. God incarnate. God in the flesh. They were words that pierced the heart and the soul. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, And Jesus finished these sayings. The crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. In all of this darkness and unbelief, these officers were standing right in the light of the words of God in the flesh. Think about it. It's no wonder. It's no wonder that they say no one ever spoke like this man. But, as we see, as we see this taking place, all of a sudden... Here comes the accusation of the unbelieving Jews. Look at what they said. Have you also been deceived? There must have been in the, in the words and the report of these officers of the temple, there must have been something that said to the Pharisees, you're, you're believing what he says. Are you one of them too? 
Have you been deceived as well? Have it, and then they further heap on. Listen to what they said. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, pointing to the people, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You want to be one of them? Do you want to be accursed? This was said because the Jews had heard some in the crowd saying that he was the Christ and he was the prophet. And now the Pharisees are saying that he's casting some sort of spell over the people. All he is is a trumped up personality that is able to deceive. So, the temple police have been duped, according to them. This is a statement of extreme sarcasm and scorn directed directly at the officers and tearing down the people. William Hendrickson, in his excellent commentary on the Gospel of John, breaks down very masterfully uh, the dialogue from verses 46 to 49. Number one, when the officers said, never did a man speak like this man, they meant so divinely and with such unaffected grace and truth that therefore so convincingly and so effectively, there's no one that speaks like this guy. But the, but the Sanhedrinist changed this. He's one that speaks so cleverly with such sinister purpose as to lead people astray. Yes, you're right. No one ever spoke like this man, but he's he's a deceiver. Number two, the Pharisees tried to impress upon these underlings who had not made a special study of the law that it was wrong for them to have a mind of their own. Boy, do we live in a day like that. This is Catholicism. You you don't know enough to know what the Bible teaches according to Catholicism. Leave that to the priest. Leave that to the professionals. John Wycliffe wanted the Bible in the hands of every plowboy so that he could read it in his own English tongue and understand it for himself. That's why they burned him at the stake. Questions touching the identity and character of the Messiah should be left entirely to the experts. That's what the Pharisees would say. Number three, with disdain, these Jewish leaders who see their power slipping away from them look down upon the unlettered crowds and the people of the soil, the mere rabble and Riffraff. The basic idea of the Pharisees was that study of the law made one wise and pious. Therefore, the crowd must be ignorant and wicked, since they have not been trained like we have. These religious leaders considered themselves to be the elite, 
the upper crust, the professionals of the law of God, the spiritual ones in Israel. Everybody else was just sort of down there, you know. We're up here, you're down there. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, was once visiting a church in Australia. He was to be the main speaker of the morning. Someone got up to introduce him and they went on and on and on about how great a man he was and how great things he had done and and how high up he was. And finally when he finished, Taylor came to the lectern and he said, I am but the... I am but the lowly servant of an illustrious master. That's the attitude. That's the attitude we're to have. This was not the attitude of the Pharisees. They looked down their noses at the crowd and considered them uneducated, gullible, and simple-minded. In their eyes, these people are simpletons who are easily deceived and easily led astray. They were the real thinkers. They were the ones to be listened to. So they asked, have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Now what are they asking? In other words, they're asking, if we haven't believed in him, if we haven't proclaimed him as the Messiah, he's not worth believing. I'll say it again, and I've said it for 23 years here now, and I've said it in other places I've been. Don't ever take for face value what I say as absolute truth. Always test it by Scripture. Always. Because I can be wrong. You have to learn to think on your own biblically. So the temple leaders vent themselves on the guards, accusing them of being just like the common, ignorant people who didn't know anything about the law of God. But it turns out these people did know something about the law of God, didn't they? Instead of helping the people understand what the Scriptures taught, they condemned them and pronounced curses on them. What a lack of common decency for people created in the image of God. Now this put the temple officers in a real hard spot. A difficult situation. They have two choices to make. They can reject Jesus and his teachings and maintain their favor with the Pharisees and their apostate religious system. Or they can believe in Jesus and be ridiculed and reprimanded with those who had believed and were redeemed. That's their choice. And there are no others. It's the same today. This is exactly the same today. This is always the choice. You can either believe in Jesus and stand with Him, or you don't believe in Him and you stand against Him. And there's no gray area. It is black or white. 
when you stand for Jesus, you will find there will be many in your family who will not understand and will not like what they see in you. They'll think you've been duped. They'll think you've gone crazy. They'll, as they did back in the day when I was saved, call you a Jesus freak. I was called a Jesus freak many times. And my, my common answer was, Jesus doesn't make any freaks. It's always the choice. It doesn't matter if it's uh, standing in front of the, the Sanhedrin or if it's with your family or if, if, or if it's at work with co-workers. doesn't matter. There's always going to be that demarcation point. You either believe and you're with Jesus or you don't and you're against Him. This was the choice they had. But just as they were sarcastically responding to this so-called ignorance of the crowd. I'm talking about the Jews now. Nicodemus speaks up in verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone before uh, to him before and who was one of them, said to them. Now when it says, you remember, of course, that Nicodemus in chapter 3 had gone to see Jesus... At night, so that he would not be seen by the other members of the Sanhedrin. He went to him, and there Jesus proclaimed the gospel to him, the gospel of the new birth. Their rhetorical question in verse 48, that none of the authorities or Pharisees had believed in Jesus, was not true. There were some. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 42, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Now, whether whether those, their belief was genuine and lasting or not is not told. But there were some that believed. If we remember that Nicodemus was the prominent and most notable teacher in Israel, which was a title that Jesus gave him in chapter 3. You are the teacher, the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? When we remember that about him, it says a lot about his Nicodemus' opinion of Jesus. He is taking a great risk at this point by speaking in favor of Jesus' rights under the law. We see that no one else spoke up. That phrase, Nicodemus, who was one of them, said to them, that does not refer to him being one of those who believed in Jesus. It speaks of him being one of them, that is, of the Pharisees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Now, we can't know for sure whether Nicodemus was a believer at this time or not. 
But it seems clear that he did become a believer at some point after this, if he wasn't here. Because we see in John 19 that it was Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, for the burial of Jesus, along with Joseph of Arimathea. I can't imagine that Nicodemus would do such a thing and not be a believer. It is true that that Nicodemus didn't openly defend Jesus. But he did remind the Pharisees of their legal obligation to uphold the law. Everybody had a right to law. Even, Even the Romans would not... Accuse would not uh, indict someone without due process of law. And so, Nicodemus stands up in Jesus' defense with regard to the law, but not personally. Acts chapter 25, we see the Apostle Paul appealing to Caesar. And once he appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen, there was nothing left to do but to take him to Caesar. Due process. Something, by the way, that I think we're losing in our country. That's another subject altogether. And on top of that, they show their own ignorance of the Scriptures when they said, Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That was not true. For Jonah, the prophet Jonah was from Galilee, Second Kings chapter 14. So the point here is this, as we look at the Pharisees, why seek truth when you can manipulate the law to your own wishes? Sound familiar? It's exactly what's happening all around us. People are manipulating the law disregarding it for their own purposes. Now, at this point, we come to chapter 8, or verse 53 of chapter 7, which is included there in chapter 8, all the way through verse 11, which is the story of the woman taken in adultery. You may see in your study Bibles... Or an entry that says that this passage is not present in the earliest Greek manuscripts. And that's true. It's not. So, the passage suggests that Jesus... How can we say, okay, well this, this it does seem out of place, does it not? Because when you get to chapter 12, oh, you're right back to the feast again. So how did this get in between chapter, these two chapters? The passage suggests that Jesus spent the night on the Mount of Olives in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. But the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record that that only happened during the Passion Week, during the Passover week, which is still six months away at this point. 
It is, of course, possible that Jesus spent some nights on the Mount of Olives, uh, but it's not recorded that he did. It's possible. Although the Synoptic Gospels refer to the Mount of Olives, John does not refer to it outside of this passage. Nowhere else in John will you find uh, a reference to the Mount of Olives. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts from a variety of of, uh, sources omit this story. It is not found in many translations that are in other languages, and it is not commented on by any of the early church fathers, which gives indication that this story was or could have been inserted at a later time. However, in light of these things, it does speak of an actual event in the Lord's life and ministry. There's no contradiction here with any other story or any other teaching in the New Testament. It is most likely an oral story that was at some point later inserted And so having said that, I want to jump to verse 12 of chapter 8. And then at a later time, come back and teach this section, this first 11 verses in chapter 8 by itself. I don't want to break the continuity of the end of the feast. So pick up with me um, at verse 12. In chapter 8, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but my Father, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father too. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Difficult words. In the previous chapter, Jesus has presented himself as the water of life, which of which thirsty souls may come and drink and be quenched and satisfied. 
In fact, the giving of water, the phrase giving of water was was a, a common phrase for the teaching and explaining of the law of God. The drinking that Jesus speaks of is equated with believing that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and as such, God incarnate. I want you to notice the word again in verse 12. First word, again, Jesus spoke. What is is he talking about? Well, what has he said to begin with? He stood and cried out with a loud voice, I am the water of life. In connection with the pouring of the water from the pool of Siloam and the jubilation of the people, remembering that God had given water out of a rock in the wilderness. And so now, in a second public address, Jesus again speaks to the people in the temple, and we would assume in that same loud voice from chapter 7, verse 37, and in earshot of the Jewish leaders, he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. For someone who would not be the light of the world, that would be the most arrogant statement ever made. But it's not arrogance in Jesus' case because he is exactly what he claims to be. Only this time in connection, this is said only this time in connection with the last of the ceremonial events. The lighting of the menorah, the the candlestick, the seven beaten gold candlestick or candelabra if I could say. That golden lamp in the temple that was lit every day of the feast. This is now on the last day of the feast. The feast is coming to a final conclusion, a crescendo if you will. And Jesus has declared himself the water of life in connection with the pouring of the water and the water that flowed in the wilderness. And now he stands and as the menorah is lit, He stands up and and cries out, I am the light of the world. He would have been very close to this menorah. And it wasn't a small thing. He's applying himself to the fiery pillar that hovered over the tabernacle in the wilderness that gave light and fire at night. God's presence among the people. The golden candelabra was some 60 feet high. That's enormous. And when it was lit, the light, the glow of the fire from the candelabra could be seen all over Jerusalem. And that warm glow that went out And caused the Jews to think back to the time when God hovered over the tabernacle, over the the temple in the pillar of fire to light the light, to light the way 
It was at this point that Jesus, proclaiming himself to be the light of the world, certainly we think back about John the Baptist, which he said in John chapter 1, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. That's still true, by the way. The phrase was a similar, was a familiar and common one to the Jewish people because they recognized that God, their God, was a God of light. They knew that. The psalmist called God his light in Psalm 27 verse 1. God is my light and my salvation. Isaiah called God the everlasting light in Isaiah 60 verse 19. This was the phrase used by to speak of the Messiah. That he would be one that would bring light to Israel. So Jesus claims not only to be here the light of the Jewish people, but he also claims to be the light of the Gentile people. The people of all the earth. This claim would have startled the Pharisees, for they hated the Gentiles. I said this morning in fit, you know, we, we have a lot of racial hatred in our country today. But what we see around us in racial hatred today doesn't hold a candle to the hatred that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. They hated the Gentiles. So this would have caused further anger and hatred among the Pharisees of Jesus when he said this. Let's face the facts. The world that we live in is a dark place. It's dark because the prince of darkness, Satan, rules it. This he has been granted by God for a time. He is the prince and the power of the air. He is the ruler of the darkness of this world. But as John said, the world cannot extinguish the light of the gospel. Nothing can extinguish it. The darker the world becomes, the more bright the gospel appears to be. So what do we do? Well, we follow our Lord wherever He goes. We say whatever He said. And we believe that His gospel will bring light and love and hope and satisfaction to people in Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. We're not talking about a superficial, hyped up so-called revival that flashes in the pan for a few days or a week or two weeks and then it's gone. We're talking about a walking with Christ 
living for Him, living with Him, showing forth His light to a world that's in darkness. And you cannot, you cannot have that unless you deal with human sin. can't be done. People have to know that they're sinners. They have to have some bad news before the good news makes any sense to them. And the bad news is they're sinners that are going to die and end up in hell. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus saves. So walk in the light as He is in the light and we will have fellowship with one another and with Jesus Christ, God's Son. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your blessing, for Your work in our hearts. Thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for conviction of sin. Thank You for the ability to confess and be forgiven and cleansed. Thank you that we can call you our Father. A Father who loves us far more than we could possibly know. If our hearts deceives us, God is greater than our heart. And so when we think we're, we've gone too far or we've We're not good enough. Help us remember we could have never been good enough. And we could never be good enough now. It's all by your grace. It's all by your mercy that we are what we are. So help us remember. And help us rejoice in what you have done in our lives. Help us stay true and faithful to you and to the scriptures. Because that's the only hope for us and for the world. For our, our families and for our friends. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.